Well, we're going to be in Exodus 24 this morning, uh, but I want to give a little bit of background of where we've been and even where we're going. As I've mentioned before, uh, we've been traveling through the book of Exodus, chapter 20, dealing with the Ten Commandments, chapters 21 through 23, uh, dealing with what's called the Book of the Covenant. These were practical applications of the Ten Commandments, how to live out the Ten Commandments within Israel's specific social context, and really what it looked like to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, just to remind you of some of them, I mean, God's law uh, forbade the stealing of men, selling them into slavery. Uh, we studied different types of crimes. We studied God's laws on capital crimes, personal injuries, even criminal negligence, and how God wants us to make things right when we hurt someone. We studied the laws of restitution, what's needed to be done in order to pay back the loss of property due to theft or negligence. And we looked, we paid special attention at God's definition of justice. First off, what I would call vertical justice how we should live justly toward God, what it means to live rightly towards God, and horizontal justice, how we should act justly, rightly toward others, justice towards the weak, the vulnerable in society. We studied the laws against mistreatment of women, mistreatment of immigrants, and mistreatment of the poor. And we understood that loving God and loving your neighbor go hand in hand. I mean, God even gives laws about telling the truth, not to be a false witness. And he had warnings against following the crowd. Instead, he commands us to be people of integrity, laws that tell us to be, to be advocates for justice. And these laws focused on man's responsibility for self-government under the government of God. And God expected his people to keep them. And by doing so, they would grow into a unique nation. And, and the last time we were exploring Exodus, chapter 23 kind of wrapped up with God promising what would happen if Israel kept the laws and giving warnings of what would happen if they didn't. And you, if you remember, God had given them the promise of his presence to protect them and take them into the promised land, to the land he had prepared for them. He promised to be an enemy to their enemies. But he also warned them not to bow down to the pagan gods of, of the people around them. They were to worship only the Lord. And God promised to give them the land little by little as they could handle it. And God warned them not to compromise. Do not compromise with ungodliness. And now we move in to chapter 24 of Exodus. And you've got to understand something. To me, reading through Exodus is really like reading an epic adventure. And, and with epic adventures, there's some dramatic moments. And, and I think maybe one of the most 
dramatic moments in all of Exodus occurs in Exodus chapter 24. This is when God confirms his covenant with Israel. And we won't be able to cover the whole thing today. That'll be for uh, next time, but we'll at least get started into Exodus 24. And as I mentioned, I mean, God has been given his people his law in the form of the covenant. God had the right to tell them to serve no other gods, to not make idols, to not dishonor his name. He was Israel's savior, calling Israel to honor him as their Lord. He was their God. They were his people. And this is what the Bible means by covenant. It's a sacred relationship established by God in which God belongs to his people and his people belong to him. And in order for any covenant to be properly established, it has to be confirmed. This is what we're seeing. Now, remember the Israelites had gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is where they are. They're at the foot of the mountain. And to this point, God has been speaking to the nation in general. But now he speaks directly to Moses, calling him to come and worship. God says this, we're starting out in Exodus 24, verse 1. Go up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and bow in worship at a distance. Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others are not to approach, and the people are not to go up with him. Now understand that the, the confirmation of a covenant was a solemn occasion in which everything needed to be done according to the Lord. And Moses and the leaders were called to go back to the mountain, and then Moses alone would meet with God. You know, I think, I, I wonder uh, if you ask the average, even the biblically informed Christian, what happened when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments? They would probably say something like this. Well, Moses went into the mountain. He came down with the, with the uh, uh, tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them. But if you read the text as we're walking through it, you notice it took more than one visit by Moses going up to the mountain before he came down with the tablets of stone. It's really pretty difficult to keep track of all the times that Moses went up and down the mountain. But understand, this was his job. Moses was the mediator going between a holy God and his sinful people. And whenever Moses went up the mountain, he represented the people before God. Now, this time he had some company. His brother Aaron went with him uh, as the father of Israel's priests. Aaron's two sons were also there. Nadab and Abihu. Now, later, these two would be destroyed for their malpractice as priests, for offering unholy fire on God's altar. They would violate the very thing that we studied in chapter 23. They would compromise and mix together Canaanite religion with the worship of God, and they would be destroyed because they were trying to invent rather than obey in terms of worship. 
but that's that's for the future. Now, going up the mountain, Moses, his brother Aaron, Aaron's two sons, and 70 of Israel's leaders. Presumably, these were the men that were chosen earlier in Exodus when Moses appointed elders to help him govern Israel. And these 70 men would have represented various tribes of Israel. Now, together, they approach God for worship. However, they're not allowed to get too close. You see, God made it clear that it's an awesome thing to enter into his holy presence. Most of the people were not allowed to go up the mountain at all. They stayed at the foot of the mountain. The priests and elders were allowed to go part of the way up, but even they had limited access. And God told them to keep their distance. Only Moses, the mediator, was permitted to draw near and meet with God. By setting these boundaries, God was telling his people to honor his holiness. He's a great and an awesome God, perfect in righteousness. And what it was saying here is that we can only come close to God if we come the way that he has appointed. There's no compromise in worship. Now, back then, the people approached God through their priests, through Moses. And today, we come through the one and only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Through Jesus, we gain access to God. No one else can or needs to go to God for us. We meet with him in Christ. To speak of meeting with God, I mean, I'm really just talking about worshiping God. To worship God is to come into his presence with praise. And whenever we come into his presence, we need to bow down and worship. I mean, you look right here in the text. This is what Israel's elders did. God told them you were to bow down and worship. And they bow down, they bow down low before the holy God. So in one sense, Exodus is the story of a worship service. Really the first one fully described in the Bible. It contains nearly all the basic elements of a public worship service. There's a call to worship. There's the reading of God's word. There's a confession of faith. And there's even the sharing of a sacramental meal. It was all done in the presence of a holy and glorious God. This is what worship is, meeting with God. And this is why God saved the Israelites so they could worship him. And Exodus 24 is a fulfillment of that promise. Now, Moses, for, for lack of a better description, was the worship leader. And as such, he had important responsibilities. And the first one was to communicate God's law. And so what we, what we read is that Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. The commands, of course, refer to the Ten Commandments. The ordinances from chapters 21 through 23, all the ways to live out these Ten Commandments. And understand they're not recommendations, but categorical commands of God. 
Now, as soon as the Israelites heard what God wanted, they were willing to accept the terms. All the people responded with a single voice. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. Now, once the terms of this covenant had been set out and accepted, they were written down and not subject to any more change. It says here, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now, you can almost consider this like a first draft of the Old Testament in a sense. But I want to draw your attention to it because it's so easy for us to, to read right over this phrase. It's not even 10 words in English. But the point needs to be emphasized here. Even at this very early stage in the history of God's people, they were already guided by a written revelation, not merely oral tradition. Think about this. They wouldn't have to go back to Moses and say, Moses, remind us again, what did you hear from God? And Moses would go, well, well, let me think. That's been a few years ago. But God said something like this. No, it's not oral tradition or even prophetic guidance. Now, to be sure, there were, there were many prophets in the Old Testament who gave an authoritative word from the Lord. But understand that they would be guided and led by what was written down. I don't think it can be emphasized enough the significance of the words being written down. This was a fixed, objective, cross-cultural standard of truth that would outlast these people. From the very beginning, Moses wrote this down. And unlike the nations around them, these people would be people of the book. Now, to show his people how serious he was in demanding their obedience, God sealed this covenant relationship with blood. And this is the second main thing that Moses had to do. After telling them, uh, after telling them the law, he made sacrifices, then sprinkled the blood as a confirmation of the covenant. He rose early the next morning and set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He set it up at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings. These are peace offerings, fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. As Moses did these things, he was careful to follow God's instructions. He started by building the altar. And this altar represented God's presence, a place for making sacrifices. This is essentially, this is, this is really essential because sinners can only worship a holy God on the basis of a sacrifice. People worshiped God long before there was a temple or even a tabernacle, but they never worshiped him without an altar. When Noah and the patriarchs worshiped God, 
They always started by building an altar. And the altar mentioned here, uh, it was it, the even though the altar could be used for many types of sacrifices, the specific sacrifice mentioned here is called the fellowship offering. And the fellowship offering was grilled until it was tender, and then it was served as a meal. But before any of this could be done, the blood had to be drained. And blood from the fellowship offering was carefully collected in large bowls and then sprinkled. And this is the most important part of the ceremony. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Now, it says next that Moses took the covenant scroll and he read it aloud to the people. This is the verse that gives the book of the covenant its name. And notice here that it says he read it aloud to the people. In verse 3, it says he told the people, but now he's reading aloud from the book that he's just written. He, must, he's, he has just written down God's commands and ordinances, and he's reading that book to the people. Reading the law here was a necessary part of the ceremony for confirming the covenant. You see, Moses told God's law the first time so the people would know what they're getting into. And as soon as the Israelites heard what God wanted, they accepted his terms. Back in verse 3, it said, the people said, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. This is the right thing to say. But even after they decided to accept God's covenant, they needed to hear the law again to confirm the covenant. The people had heard the law the first time so they would understand what God demanded. They heard it a second time so they could promise to do it. Think about it. I mean, something similar happens in a wedding ceremony. At the beginning of the ceremony, the bride and groom are asked to declare their intentions. Uh, the minister says, will you have this person as your lawfully wedded spouse? Uh, and then they say, I will. Well, now it means they're willing to enter into the covenant of marriage. But they're actually not married yet until they say, go through with the marriage vows. And so this is kind of the same thing that's happening here. First, Israel declared their intent. And then they took the vows. Now, I, th I think another reason Another good reason for Moses to read the law was that the people needed to hear it more than once. It's not enough to listen to God every now and then. We need to hear his voice again and again. I think this is especially important when it comes to public worship. The covenant was confirmed in a worship service a central part of which was the public reading of God's word. And I still think that that is true today, that God is not properly worshiped unless his word is read and also explained. We need to hear what God has to say every time we meet for worship. This is the very heart of worship. It's not just about feeling the heart of worship. It's about, it's about this book. 
God's word must be read and taught. All the stipulations, all the promises, all the blessings, all the cursings. God's people hear it, receive it, understand it, and respond to it. Whenever God's word is read, I would argue that it calls for a response. And the Israelites responded to the reading of the law by promising to do whatever God said. They made it unanimous. Remember the first time God, that Moses orally spoke it to them, they said, yes, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. The second time Moses read from the book, the people were even more emphatic. They responded, we will do and obey everything that the Lord has commanded. We will be obedient to the law. I tell you, though, this, this was a pretty daring promise. I mean, the people had just heard God's law, all of it. They'd heard God say that they couldn't have any other gods, that they couldn't make idols, that they couldn't lie, that they couldn't steal, that they couldn't covet. They'd heard all of God's regulations for property and for injury. They heard the law in all its righteousness. And they knew what perfect obedience God was demanding in every area of life. And yet, when Moses finished reading the law, the whole community said, yes, let's do it. Yes, Lord, we will obey. We will obey every last word of your covenant. Now, apparently, they were real optimists. I mean, what else can you say to explain uh, such a such a promise. Now, on the other hand, what else would you say when the Lord tells you to obey? But yes, Lord. But understand, these people, they were natural born sinners. And yet God's law demanded perfect obedience. There was not a man, woman, or child anywhere in Israel that was able to keep God's law. And it wasn't simply that they failed here and there. They were unable to keep even a single command in perfect integrity. Nevertheless, they agreed to keep the whole law of God. I mean, and what would they have done otherwise? God, the creator and redeemer, he has the right to demand whatever he pleases. He is holy and just. And so what he demands is always righteous. When God gave his people the terms of his covenant, the only thing they could do was to accept. Keeping God's law was the right way for them to live. Now, after sprinkling half the blood on the altar, after reading the covenant scroll to the people, and after the people had responded, we will do and obey, Moses sprinkled the blood on the people. Verse 8 says, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Now, as a, as a side note, Jesus will refer back to this in the Last Supper when he talks about the memorial meal. This is the blood of the new covenant. Well, here, here is the blood of the old covenant. And Jesus will declare the blood of the new covenant 
and memorialize it in what we know as the Lord's Supper. But, but why did Moses sprinkle blood on the people? You know, it, it almost sounds primitive. What purpose did it serve? Well, God had Moses sprinkle the people with blood to set them apart as holy, as God's people. But there was more to it than this. The blood, the blood also showed that the covenant was a matter of life and death. In the ancient world, a covenant was typically sealed in blood. That would symbolize what would happen if either party failed to comply. So the blood of God's covenant with Israel meant something similar. The, the same pledge to death, really, which played a prominent role in the, in the covenant with Abraham, shows itself again here with, uh, with this covenant. Animals were sacrificed. Their blood was sprinkled on people and really also on God being represented here by the altar. Both parties were undertaking a covenant commitment. And the covenant was not signed, but sealed in blood. Keeping the covenant meant that life would ensue. Breaking the covenant meant the spilling of blood and death. So the blood of the covenant would hold the threat of divine judgment for everyone who broke God's law. But understand this, and this is very important to understand, that this blood was also a sign of God's mercy. God was not simply showing his people what would happen if they failed. He was also showing them a way for them to remain in his favor even after they sinned. To put it another way, although the relationship God established had a legal basis, in a sense it was a like a covenant of grace. First, Moses sprinkled it on the altar of God, which showed that the people's sins were forgiven. This is what a bloody altar always signifies, the forgiveness of sins. Atonement has been made. God has accepted the sacrifice as a payment of sin. The blood was also a propitiation, meaning that it turned aside God's wrath. The blood was sprinkled on the people. And this showed that God had accepted their sacrifice and that they were now included in the covenant through the forgiveness of sins. God's relationship with his people was maintained on the basis of a sacrifice. It was a bond in blood, so to speak. For the people to have any type of relationship with God at all, God had to accept the sacrifice that they had made for their sins. Now notice also, I just want to point out something else here, the way that Moses describes this relationship. He, he describes it as the covenant that the Lord has made with you. It all started with God. The Israelites did not go to God and say, Lord, we'd really like to have a relationship with you. No, the whole arrangement was God's idea in the first place.
the covenant here is not a matter of really mutual agreement or a pact between God and the Israelites. It's the covenant that the Lord has made by his initiative. What the Israelites are to do is accept and agree to live by the terms that God and God alone has given. Now, I'll step back just a minute and ask, what is the value of taking time to carefully study the covenant that God made with Israel? Well, Israel's experience at Mount Sinai shows us how to have a right relationship with God. Like the Israelites, we stand in the presence of a holy God who calls us to worship him. Like the Israelites, we cannot keep it any better than they did. And like the Israelites, we can belong to God on the basis of blood. Blood, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but blood has always been the basis for a relationship with God. The Old Testament sacrifices, including the ones confirmed in the covenant, they taught God's people to look for salvation to come by blood. This was preparing the way for Jesus, who showed the full significance of the old sacrifices when he shed his blood on the cross for our sins. When the New Testament talks about Christ, it often describes his saving work in terms of blood. You know, the Old Testament sacrifices is just what I said. They were preparing the way for Jesus. Romans 3.25 says this, God presented him, Jesus, as a propitiation an offering of atonement through faith in his blood. Romans 5, 9, we have now been declared righteous by his blood. Ephesians 1, 7, we have, redeem, re, we have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or sins. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Colossians 1.19 and 20, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. It's by the blood of Jesus that we are justified, that we are redeemed, that we are reconciled, that we are forgiven, that we are released. We're saved by the blood, the blood of the covenant. Hebrews says this, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, meaning those who are ceremonial unclean, if that sanctifies them so that they are 
outwardly clean, how much more will the blood of Christ the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? You see, anyone who has a guilty conscience, as every sinner does, can be clean by trusting in the blood of Christ. Like the Israelites, we are saved by the blood. And I would argue that the writer of Hebrews, he was obviously thinking about Exodus 24 when he went on to describe the, the covenant that God made with Israel. A uh, little bit before this, but in, in Israel, he, he says that when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with the water, the scarlet wool, the hyssop, and the scroll, and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you. You see, that covenant was established on the basis of blood. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. For us to find true forgiveness, to have a relationship with God, some kind of sacrifice has to be made for our sins. And this is the sacrifice that Jesus provided on the cross. But now he, Jesus, appeared one time, really once for all, at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. God has made a covenant with us in Christ. As I mentioned earlier, to be a proper covenant, it has to be established in blood, and so it was. Just as Moses sprinkled blood on the altar, Christ shed his blood on the cross. Atonement has been made Sins have been forgiven. The cross is where we go to find salvation. It's not found anywhere else. Hebrews goes on to say, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. When we read... In Exodus 24, what happened between God and his people, it, it shows what it means for anyone to have a relationship with God. But it really goes even deeper because this covenant, and understand, this covenant lies at the very heart of the universe, at the center of God's plan for humanity. At the, at the end of Hebrews, and I didn't show this text up here, at the end of Hebrews, Christ's blood is described as the blood of the eternal covenant. But what does it mean to be the blood of the eternal covenant? The eternal covenant goes back before the beginning of time. It, it refers to the covenant of redemption that God made, that God made among the persons of the Trinity. Somewhere in eternity past, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit made a covenant for the salvation of sinners. Charles Spurgeon imagined how 
that may have happened. He envisioned the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit making this covenant. And the first to speak is the Father. And this, this is from, from Spurgeon. And, and he's just imagining what God the Father would have spoken out when he's making this covenant. And God the Father would say, I, the Most High Jehovah, do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved Son, I give to them, I give to him a people, countless beyond the number of the stars, who shall be by him washed from sin, by him preserved and kept and led, and by him at last presented before my throne, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I covenant an oath and swear by myself, because I can swear by no one greater, that those whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the objects of my eternal love. Them I will forgive through the merits of his blood. To these will I give a perfect righteousness. These will I adopt and make my sons and daughters, and these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. And now it's the Holy Spirit's turn to speak. And for his part, the Spirit promises, promises to bring sinners to a knowledge of salvation. And the Holy Spirit says this, I hereby covenant that all whom the Father giveth to the Son, I will in due time quicken. I will show them their need of redemption. I will cut them off from all groundless hope. I will destroy their refuge of lies. I will bring them to the blood of sprinkling. I will give them faith whereby this blood shall be applied to them. I will work in them every grace. I will keep their faith alive. I will cleanse them and drive out all depravity from them, and they shall be presented at last spotless and faultless. And finally, among the Trinity that's having this conversation, it's time for the, the Son of God to make his covenant commitment. And he says this, My Father, on my part, I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world, and for my people I will keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness, which shall be acceptable to the demands of your just and holy law. In due time, I will bear the sins of all my people. You shall exact, exact their debts on me. The chastisement of their peace I will endure, and by my stripes they will be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I will magnify the law and make it honorable. I will suffer all that they should have suffered. I will endure the, cross, the curse of your law, and all the vials of your wrath shall be emptied and spent on my head. I will rise again. I will ascend into heaven. I will intercede for them at your right hand, and I will make myself responsible for every one of them, that not one of those whom you have given me shall ever be lost, but I will bring all my sheep 
whom by, by your blood you have constituted me as the shepherd, I will bring every one of them safe to you at last. You see, this is just, just a, a, a word picture of the covenant that was made among the Trinity, among the three persons of the Godhead. And again, to be a covenant, it had to be sealed in blood. And so it was. That eternal covenant was ratified with the blood of the Son of God. When Moses sprinkled the blood on the people, he said, this is the blood of the covenant. But when Jesus came to offer himself on the cross, he said, this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus offered, what Jesus offered was not just blood, but his blood, the blood of God. Now we can see why the cross must be at the center of our salvation. You may have not realized this at first, but this is, is in one sense a follow-up to my Reformation sermon, Solus Christus, or Christ alone. It is only by the blood of Jesus shed on that cross that we're able to have a covenant relationship with God. It is by that same blood that God established his eternal covenant. When Jesus died on that cross, he sealed the deal that the triune God had made in eternity past. The application is really simple. The only way to be saved, that is, the only way to be forgiven, the only way to have a right relationship with God, the only way to ultimately get to heaven, is by the blood of Jesus Christ. If we're to be saved, we have to deal with Jesus. His atoning work must be applied directly to our sins. It's only by trusting in the blood that he shed on that cross, that anyone ever gets saved. And you know what's really exciting, though? Everyone who believes in Jesus has the strongest reason for confidence in times of trouble or in any time. We do not need to be plagued with guilt as if somehow our sin could keep us away from God if we have put our trust in the blood of Christ. We do not need to keep our distance as if we were unworthy to come into God's presence. God has made a relationship with us by the very blood of his son. Nothing could possibly establish a more certain basis for our salvation. And there is no way to get unsprinkled. I'm going to end with this out of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is blessed assurance. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith our hearts sprinkled clean 
from an evil conscience and our body is washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering for what he promised is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that we can see into the life of Israel, for these chapters into the life of Israel. May they be an encouragement to us in our life in Christ. May we grasp the significance of the blood, of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, how his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, how that establishes for us a new covenant, and how we are brought into an everlasting fellowship with you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Once a slave to the fear and the darkness held within, oh, the weight of my sin, my shame. By his grace purified in redeeming sacrifice, living hope that won't spoil or fade. I am washed by the blood of the Son on the cross. I am washed by the blood of the Lamb. All my guilt, all my shame, were His wounds and His pain. I am washed by the blood of the Lamb. Now we know who we are, precious children called by God. Let us serve and exalt our King with our hearts and our minds. Freely offer up our lives, run a race, fix our eyes on Him. We are washed by the blood of the Son on the cross. We are washed by the blood of the Lamb. All my guilt, all my shame, were his wounds and his pain I am washed by the blood of the Lamb We will rise as he rose For the grave no longer holds 
every tear will be wiped away and the saints will be heard praising God forevermore face to face with the one who saves we are washed by the blood of the Son on the cross we are washed We are washed by the blood of the Lamb. We are washed by the blood of the Son on the cross. We are washed by the blood of the Lamb. All our guilt, all our shame were His wounds. And his pain, we are washed by the blood of the love that song bill that's a wonderful song <laughs> thank you um it's um it, it it just reiterates this idea of assurance um, you can't be unsprinkled <laughs> that's right um jesus not does not let go of that which he initially grasped He's walking us through every situation, every struggle, every disappointment, every injustice. He walks through it with us. And he has purposes for them all. And we can trust him. We should trust him. We ought to trust him. And we can trust him. Any other thoughts you want to share? Share to thank Roger for his message. Yeah, while Roger was speaking, Eva had a comment to make. And um, you sure you don't want to? She, she said she does. She's a little scared to say it, but, <laughs> but it was a very important comment. She said, it wasn't just like Jesus gave a little blood. He had to give all of his blood and his whole life. Yeah. And uh, just like the animals, she also said, they didn't just give a little blood. They had to give their whole life. And that was what paid the sacrifice. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Because the blood is a, is a stand in for life, isn't it? In a lot of ways. To give your, it's not like giving blood at the Red Cross. It's giving your blood into death. That's yeah, it wasn't a slight donation of blood. No, right. <laughs> exactly. Right, exactly. What's so sobering about this is 
you know, the, the, the definition of propitiation is a blood sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God. And we need to be so eternally grateful that, that God has opened our hearts and minds that we see who he is. But we also need to be ever mindful that the wrath of God is a terrible, terrible thing. And it's going to be poured out on everyone that refuses to acknowledge Jesus. You know, uh, over and over, Scripture call, talks about the wrath of the Lamb, and it talks about wrath that's uh, coming on people that uh, indulge in immorality and impurity and all of these types of things. Uh, and so we we need to be fervent in prayer because if you think about the wrath of God when it's poured out, it includes multitudes of people everywhere that refuse to, to bow the knee and refuse to acknowledge that a sacrifice has been made for them. And it's just very, very sobering if we stop and think about it from in any kind of deep way. Amen. Amen. Any other thoughts anybody wants to share? There's a there's a movie. Uh, it's not a movie. It's like a it's a uh, it's a it's a theater. It's a live theater uh, show that this ministry called Sight and Sound Theater uh, have. Yeah, so they 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 have a movie that is called In the Beginning. And the first time that I watched it, it was in Peru, and I and I completely loved it because uh, there's a there's a specific part where Adam and Eve uh, are um, they're being asked to leave the garden. That God, after they sinned, of course, uh, there's an encounter of God with them, and then God providing uh, a covering for them to cover their nakedness, and that had, and that was uh, the sacrifice of an animal in order to, for them to be covered, and, uh, which represents now the the the, the yeah the shadow of blood that Jesus made for us. Yeah. And, and, and as Mr. Roger was speaking, I always remember, my goodness, how severe and serious it is our sin in order for, in order to satisfy the, the wrath of God, there's someone that needs to pay the penalty, someone that needs to die. How severe it is. Uh, it makes me think of my sins, obviously, and, and how severe it is for for God to, to how how seriously He takes it, and that He not over. How do you say when uh, He doesn't let it go? Like He doesn't say, "Okay, uh, well." 
we'll work it out next time. Just don't do it. There's, there's a penalty to pay. I'm glad that I, that wrath of God was not applied to me. It was applied to Jesus. Um, and, and that makes me thankful etern eternally until the fin my final day that I, I was not uh, the one on that cross that was, was my Savior, our Savior. We, we can be so thankful. I think that that wrath is not applied to us. Yeah. So, Roger, I had a question. Um, why was half the blood put in the basin and half of it sprinkled? Why was it all sprinkled? Or do you have any idea? Well, yeah, the, I mean, half of it was sprinkled on the altar, and then half of it was basically set aside in the basins to then later on sprinkle on the people. So what was in the basin was... The part that was used later to sprinkle on the people. Yeah, I had that same question listening, but then I, I looked at it and said, "Okay, he was—he just stored it in the basin until he was ready to sprinkle it on the people." So it was all used one way or the other. That's right. Yeah. Now, I thought a lot. But, uh, um, the first—the first blood that was shed was there in the garden because the they tried to cover themselves with leaves and of course we see a lot of falling leaves right now but that's not enough to cover our sin so uh, a life had to be given and and that was such a i mean if, if you're the greatest authors use foreshadowing right to kind of build the suspense of the story this establishing this covenant and god certainly did that when he took the lives of those animals to make clothes of skin, uh, you know, their skins for, to cover them. Um, um, thank you, Jesus. That's all you can say. <laughs> One thing that's interesting is that if you follow the life of Abraham, you see that um, he makes, he builds a lot of altars in various places. And of course, the sign of the altar is, is to worship God. But he's not allowed, he never uses an altar that's already there because those are pagan altars. And he always builds a new one because it's set aside to God and not, you know, it's, it's when, when you talk, look at uh, other places in the Old Testament, they're told to tear down the, the, the altars to Baal. Right. And to tear down the high, you know, the high places because these are all pagan altars. And you don't ever use a pagan altar because they're polluted. You you build a new altar to God. And it's significant that we don't try to build on pagan altars when we're worshiping God, that we get rid of all of it. Thank you, Lord. It didn't get in the passage here. It didn't go into how many sacrifices or or how much blood, but blood. You know, there was a large number of Israelites here, and blood had to be sprinkled on every one of them. So you can imagine just the the number of animal sacrifices that had to take place, and the amount of blood that had to be set aside in these basins to be sprinkled some blood be sprinkled on, on every person there. Mary, you want to share something? 
You have to unmute. We got it now? Yep. Um, we're out here on the prayer and praise porch. <laughs> and um, looks good. <laughs> okay, Eva's showing you the yep. cross. Yep. And um, while you were singing that last song, she got up and um, and wanted to hold on to the cross. Mm. Well, we just go. <laughs> and then she wanted us both to to hold on to the cross um, by the blood of the lamb. And um, I think about when <clears throat> when we've been doing the Bible study, um, Betty and Eva and, and um, myself, and when we got to the third chapter of John, Eva said all week long. All week long, I've just been thinking about that line 16 in that chapter. I can't stop thinking about that line 16. And so today, we, we were talking about line 16, about how God loved the world so much that he didn't just give it the Red Cross. <laughs> he, he made the Red Cross, you know, um, by, by giving his all. To, to show his love and to bring us into his family eternally. Yeah. So, Roger, thank you. And Bill, thank you for the worship. Um, Eva's comment was, that was such a perfect song to end <laughs> in the message with. And all of them that led up to that as well. Um, and Roger, you mentioned the covenant of marriage. And yesterday, Mary Beth Madden, uh, entered into a covenant of marriage yeah. with a man named Nathan. And so uh, we, I, I know Cecil must be down there and a number of um, maybe Preston did the wedding. Are Jessica and Jason down there? They went, but they're back. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so we celebrate with the Madden family as, as Mary Beth has gotten married. Um, and I'm sure she's still accepting gifts if you. <laughs> I'm sure she would be. I'm sure she would be. We have several birthdays this week. I don't think any of the folks are on the call, but I just would, would let you know as a reminder. Um, Viani's birthday is tomorrow. Tia's birthday is Wednesday. Jessica Bueller's birthday. Um, I can't. Her, her married name escapes me right now. But um, her birthday's Thursday. Adriana, the Dennis family will be celebrating Adriana's birthday on Friday. And Lucy's birthday is on Saturday. Wow. So again, another week of celebration of life of people that, that we love. And then Wednesday night is, is prayer meeting. And so we love it when uh, as many as possibly can will come and join us in prayer. And one other thing that um, I would mention, I, I prayed about it earlier, but I got this text last night from Christina, Christina and Slava. She said that her aunt Oksana passed away uh, on Saturday, yesterday, 
because of COVID-19. This lady turned 54 in the hospital. She was a dentist. Her husband is a surgeon and took care of her as long as that was allowed. Um, on Thursday, she was preparing for discharge, but on Friday, her condition became critical. And then on Saturday, she passed away. Um, she said, all the family is shocked. Her son, Timothy, just finished university in the spring. He is just 22. Her daughter, Paulina, was going to celebrate her 30th birthday in 10 days. This is unexpected. I mean, you can hear the, the shock and, and all in, in Christina's email. She said, I didn't think that COVID is such a serious virus until one of my relatives passed away. Oksana was a believer. I hope her soul is with God now. Please pray for their family and for my mother, Olesia, whose mother died in 2019, and now her older sister, too. Um, so she tells us to take care of ourselves and be safe. So again, I, I don't know if any of you would want to drop her a, a note or send a text, but um, if, if you would like to and need her text message or address, just let me know. Okay. So. I think those are the announcements we've got. Uh, my sister-in-law's sister, my sister-in-law, Penny, her sister, Kim, is having surgery tomorrow, have her uterus removed uh, for cancer. So just would really appreciate everyone's prayers for that. Well, let's have a, a closing prayer. Um, Greg, could we ask you to pray again? <clears throat> Uh, let me close with uh, just a comment from A.W. Tozer. He's talking about how difficult waiting is and has been for him. But he says, waiting, however, is one of the disciplines in the spiritual life. Waiting is simply transferring, transferring the responsibility to someone else. Mm. The waiting is simply us transferring the responsibility to God. You know, his timing. How many times over and over does he tell us to wait? And how often do we get antsy and concerned that it's never going to happen or that the trial's never going to be over? So let's just pray together. Lord, you tell us that those that wait upon the Lord, Lord, you tell us you're going to lift us up. You're going to not to not to tarry, not to fret, but that the waiting is going to come to an end because it's your timing, and that we're supposed to trust and be faithful. And Lord, there are a lot of Lord, there are a lot of things we wait for. We wait for we wait for blessings to come. We wait for trials to be over. We wait for the goodness of God. We wait for salvation and Jesus to appear, to be taken to you, with you, Lord, and to provide for us while we wait, to keep us faithful. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, 
you would keep us faithful, to always look at you and always to just be thankful and never to despair. Lord, hold on to us as a fellowship, as an individuals, as a people, and draw more people to yourself that the kingdom of God might be enlarged. And let us be faithful unto you. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, it's good to see everybody this morning to worship together.